This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to the Ned Ryan Podcast. This is a bit of an experiment. Uh, Folks, I'm going to be trying to do this through the summer, hopefully multiple times a week, discussing not only issues of the day, but evergreen uh, topics that I think need to be addressed, whether it's the administrative state uh, and other things that are are impacting events of today. Uh, By way of introduction, again, I think probably some of you have seen me on TV I've been doing a little bit of TV over the last four years. Uh, for a while, there was across CNN, MSNBC, Fox Business, Fox News. Uh, for some reason, uh, CNN and MSNBC don't like me blowing up their narratives. So I'm really no longer on those channels. Although I have to confess, uh, many people um, did not know I was on those channels because our people, and by that I mean center right, America First types, I typically don't watch CNN, MSNBC, but I always figured some of us had to go on those channels to confront and challenge and, quite frankly, blow up the narratives uh, of the left. Uh, Fox Business, obviously, Fox News. Some of you will see me on Tucker Carlson. So where I'm from, I came from Kansas. I actually was born in Santa Barbara, California, moved to Kansas when I was nine, almost nine. Uh, My dad's from Kansas. I grew up there. He ran at the University of Kansas. Again, my last name is R-Y-U-N. So some of you are probably thinking he's related to Jim Ryan. Yes, that's my dad. Three-time Olympian, world record holder in the mile, et cetera, et cetera. Came back to uh, D.C. after graduating from University of Kansas in 2000. Worked uh, in a variety of places until went into work in the inaugural committee when George W. Bush was elected for the first time. Worked at the Pentagon, Air Force Public Affairs, then went over to the White House, worked as a presidential writer, 2001, 2002. You know, from there, went and raised money for my dad. My dad was in Congress for 10 years, representing the 2nd District of Kansas. So helped raise campaign uh, funds and and PAC uh, monies, all those things for his reelection. Then in 2003, helped co-found and start something called Generation Joshua, was aimed at getting Primarily high school youth, but even junior hires involved in more civics and history education, but then practical application. I'm a big believer. It's one thing to know something. It's another to put those beliefs into action. And so we would put sometimes teams of 150 young people and their parents on the campaign trail in the last four or five days of an election in targeted races to be out there doing their civic duty, to be knocking on doors, to be doing live phone calls. Then in 2007, started having conversations with some people who'd been studying the left and what they were doing and building up what they called privatized infrastructure, meaning different entities outside of the traditional political parties doing things that needed to be done that perhaps the parties weren't doing very well. And so out of those conversations came American Majority, which we started in January of 2008. And the whole purpose of American Majority is to identify and train people to run for state and local office, to build a farm team of conservatives, to run for school board and city council and mayor and state house and state senate. We'll have congressional candidates come through, uh, but we don't actively identify and and train uh, at the congressional level. I'm a big believer that politics is policy, and I think too often in many ways, many inside the conservative movement have gotten enraptured with the idea of ideas in which they think that somehow out of the goodness of their ideas, we're going to win. And that's not true. I I firmly believe that bad people with good organizing are always going to beat people with good ideas and bad organizing. And I really think in some ways that sums up the left versus the right uh, in, in, in today's political world, where 
the left has terrible ideas. They, their ideas are un-American. They, their ideas of socialism and statism, which we've seen even more apparent even in the most recent days, obviously in defunding the police and all the crazy ideas we're seeing come off of college campuses, which by the way are not really centers of higher learning anymore. They're indoctrination centers. What we're seeing now on the streets has, has been indoctrinated into multiple generations of youth and now we're seeing it come out on the streets. These ideas are not American ideas, right? These are, these are socialist ideas. They are Marxist ideas, Maoist ideas. They have nothing to do with the founding or traditions of this country. And so I, I tell people, terrible ideas, but they're very good at organizing, right? They, they know how to organize the, the whole idea of community organizing, but they've been very systematic in going in and, and putting pieces in place where they've been identifying and training people to run for state and local office. They have done all of these things that have given them the ability to win politically so they can be in the right place to implement their bad policy ideas. And I think this is something that I'll probably discuss in a later podcast, my entire philosophy and strategy for how we can actually win. Because right now we've made an ungodly investment into think tanks who I think are, for the most part, worthless and ineffective uh, and are not what you need to actually win a political war. White papers are for governing. We're not actually in charge because we haven't won yet. And until we win, we don't need governing papers. We need to win politically. So American Majority started January 2008. Been doing it for 12 years now, which is pretty crazy. Um, in, the, in the course of all of this, we've trained in 50 states. We've trained nearly 50,000 people, about 5,000 of them to run for state and local office. We've had a lot of success on a variety of fronts. American Majority is the C3. American Majority Action is the C4. And again, it goes back to it's one thing to understand ideas and strategies and philosophies. It's another thing to put them into action. So American Majority Action uh, is our action arm. It's where we go out and we put into action a lot of things that we have trained on uh, in, in targeted uh, advocacy and then direct advocacy, meaning once we've done a lot of issue advocacy, uh, we then go into direct advocacy for targeted candidates to help get them elected. So again, it's one of those things where I would love for you to go visit americanmajority.org, get a better understanding of who we are. I'll probably talk again more about this later, but I just want to do a little bit of this by way of introduction. I'm now in Northern Virginia. I've been in DC in the Northern Virginia area now almost 20 years, which is pretty crazy. Hard to believe that. Uh, married to a wonderful woman, uh, Becca. We've got four great kids, and uh, we live we live again about an hour outside of, of DC. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of perspective of who I am, where I've come from. Again, I want to talk about a whole variety of topics in this podcast, but the first one I want to talk about, since I think it's so appropriate, again, in, in light of all of these, I don't even want to call them protests, quite frankly, the rioting and the looting that has been taking place. As we're seeing these crowds of over 100,000 in some places like Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., that this whole coronavirus thing, the Chinese or Wuhan coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, if you think that you've been played by the so-called experts, uh, you're right. I truly believe that what we have seen is a complete and utter failure of our so-called educated elite. And again, you can't see me, but in air quotes, educated elite, because I think we actually have a papered idiocracy. Again, going back to what I said earlier, 
you know, we have these indoctrination centers of higher learning. We've created this whole system of somehow validating people through these indoctrination centers. Doesn't mean they're actually brilliant people. Doesn't mean they're bright people. It means they've been indoctrinated. It means that they, you know, have a certain worldview. But doesn't mean that they're necessarily experts just because they have a certain piece of paper from an indoctrination center. It means that they are part of a system that has validated them, and I think we need to examine the entire premise of the validation of it all. And so that's why I call it a papered idiocracy. They have a piece of paper. Most of them are idiots. So here we are. We were told repeatedly that we had to social distance, that we had to wear masks. Again, without much data to back it up. In fact, zero data to actually truly back it up. And so what I wanted to go do is kind of run through some of the numbers because you'll hear a narrative, obviously, from mainstream media, uh, even what I call collaborators on the right, uh, those who wanted to hype up some of this pandemic that somehow this was the great apocalypse because they didn't question the premise. And I'll tell you this, when I do TV, one of the things that I've really discovered, again, when I was going on the more hostile channels of CNN or MSNBC, a couple things. First of all, I call it the Ned Ryan rule. Wait for 24 hours and the story will probably change, right? It's, it's a whole idea. They're, they attack, they throw something out, probably not really based in facts, probably based on multiple anonymous sources in which the, the story quickly falls apart. So I always call it the Ned Ryan 24-hour rule. Wait 24 hours, the story will change. The next rule I have is question everything. Question the assumptions and the premise for everything that is being, that is being communicated to you. So question again, where are these experts? Where did they come from? Why are they experts? Where are they getting their facts? How are they making their decisions? Because I think you'll find as I go through this podcast, I'll lay out some of these things in which people were, were using documentation and models that should never have been used in the first place because the people putting together those models should have been run out and discredited probably a good 15 years ago. And yet they were still used to influence decisions to shut down our economy and cost over 40 million Americans their jobs. So as we go through this, I, I'm going to spit out a couple statistics and facts to you, um, again, in, in which people have not really highlighted this, but they should. Uh, I have to tell you, thank goodness for Janice Dean, again, who does the weather on Fox News. I know that Janice and I don't agree on everything, especially in regards to Trump, but she has been a complete and utter rock star on this whole situation in which a lot of blue state governors, led by Governor Cuomo, but a lot of different blue states in Pennsylvania and other places, Michigan, they have sent those who have been recovering from coronavirus that still might have been infectious into rest homes. And now we see from statistics that many of those who, uh, many of the deaths that have taken place in a lot of states, 40, 50%, sometimes even higher, coronavirus deaths have taken place inside of assisted living or rest homes. Why is that? Well, you look at some of what took place about third, fourth week of March, understand that the CDC uh, put out some guidelines um, actually, it was the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in which a nursing home can accept a resident diagnosed with COVID-19 as long as the facility can follow CDC guidance for transmission-based precautions. If a nursing home cannot, it must wait until these precautions are discontinued. Again, this was a non-binding uh, recommendation. Emphasized the necessity for health and safety precautions. 
without actually recommending that active coronavirus patients be admitted into nursing homes. So what New York did is issued a binding order on March 25th, which stated no resident shall be denied admission or readmission to a nursing home solely based on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis of COVID-19. Nursing homes are prohibited from requiring a hospitalized resident who is determined medically stable to be tested for COVID-19 prior to admission or readmission. So that would explain a lot as to why a lot of deaths, again, in some places, 50% or more in a given state have taken place inside of rest homes or assisted living. That's why the average age here in America of death from coronavirus is 81. 81 years old is the average age of death from coronavirus here in the United States. Well, it gets even more interesting if you start to look at some of these other death uh, figures, statistics. I'm going to tell you this. I don't believe them, right? Because I don't think we've even had the real debate about with versus from, right? Somebody had coronavirus, but might have had severe underlying conditions, cancer, whatever, and they died from that, but with coronavirus versus they actually died from coronavirus. So that's one of the debates that has to take place in which we actually get to the bottom of understanding what is the real mortality rate. So as of June 5th, 2020, there were about 1.9 cumulative coronavirus coronavirus cases in the United States, uh, 108,000 deaths, and about 485,000 recoveries. And that was according to John Johns Hopkins University over in, in Baltimore. So that would say that somehow the official mortality rate of those diagnosed with coronavirus in the United States was 5.7%, if you, again, even trust the numbers, which, again, I don't. But that, that, the case count doesn't include the people who have coronavirus and, again, have not been tested by for it, who they have either mild or no symptoms, again, asymptomatic, which, by the way, the World Health Organization actually admitted that only in very, very rare instances do asymptomatic people actually transmit coronavirus to somebody else. So this whole idea that somehow children uh, that might have coronavirus would go home and then, you know, uh, transmit it to Mima and Papa is complete bogus. Again, one of the, one of the all these things are starting to fall apart from the so-called experts saying, "Well, this this will probably happen. This is why we need to shut down the schools because all these young people will go home and they might not be uh, in danger from coronavirus, but they'll transmit it to an older generation." We're now finding that it really doesn't happen. Statistics data are now showing only in very rare rare circumstances does an asymptomatic person actually transmit coronavirus to somebody else. So, as we're going through this, understand we've now done almost 19 million coronavirus tests here in the United States. That's pretty amazing. I don't think we're actually going to actually fully ever catch up again on how many people ever had coronavirus. Because again, a lot of people probably either had very mild or no symptoms at all. Might have thought for a day or two they had the flu. I know of instances where I'm at where an entire family had it. The children were asymptomatic. The mom had trouble breathing for a day. The dad felt like he had a kind of bad flu for a couple days. That was it. So a lot of people probably same kind of similar circumstances experience where maybe somebody had a flu, flu symptoms. Maybe somebody else had a little trouble one or two days, but that was it. They're not going to go out and get tested for coronavirus. So that all to say, 
I don't know if we'll ever fully understand what the real mortality rate is, but I'm going to talk about that as well. But back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, where all these blue state governors, again, are sending these coronavirus uh, patients who are still latent into rest homes or assisted living. So guess what? The 10 worst states in the country for coronavirus deaths are New York with over 30,000 deaths, New Jersey with almost 12,000, Massachusetts with over 7,000, Pennsylvania with almost 6,000, Illinois with almost 6,000, Michigan with about 5,600, California with almost 4,500, Connecticut with over 4,000, Louisiana with almost 2,900, and Maryland with 2,700. All of those states, except for Maryland and Massachusetts, who would I, w- I would argue the Republican governors probably are Democrat light, but that's another whole argument. Most of those states, eight of those 10 states are Democrat governors. With every state, by the way, just as a random side note, except for Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana, voting for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So what are the real mortality rates here? That, again, I don't think we're ever going to fully understand what that is, but there have been a whole series of antibody tests being run, especially in the month of April. And this is what is pretty staggering to me, that we were already getting indications that, first of all, coronavirus hit sooner than we thought. It was more widespread than we thought, that we were seeing that a lot more people had it and that the infection rate and mortality rate was far lower than whatever the the World Health Organization said, over 3%. So we knew this in April. Some, Some of these tests were the first and second week of April, and yet somehow we extended the lockdown for another 30 days. And I'll tell you why we did it, which is pretty staggering when you understand the sources that were used to influence that decision-making. But let's go back. Santa Clara County in California, they conducted an antibody test from April 3rd through the 4th. Two and a half to 4.2 of those tested, tested positive, which was 50 to 80 times more than the official count at the time. The infection fatality rate at the time, 0.06% to 0.1%, a tenth of a percent. So 0.06 to a tenth of a percent. In Los Angeles County, April 10th through 11th, 2.8% to 5.6% tested positive, which was 28 to 55 times higher than the official case count at the time. Again, a 0.06% to 0.12%. Miami-Dade County in Florida conducted from April 10th through the 24th. They had a 4.4 to 7.9% positive uh, result, which was approximately 16 and a half times higher than the official case count at the time. That put the infection mortality rate, fatality rate at 0.2%. New York City and New York State conducted a test, an antibody test, April 20th through the 23rd. 14% statewide and 21% in New York City tested positive, which was about 10 times more than the official case count at the time. Put the official put the infection fatality rate at 0.5%. Go overseas. As of April 24th in London, more than 2.6 million people might have already caught coronavirus and recovered from it, and the true death rate they thought at the time in London, this is third week of April, was probably 0.1, 0.10%, the United Kingdom's current death rate, 14%, actually doesn't make sense at all. It's much lower than that. But go through just different parts of the globe. Again, going back to the United States and Chelsea, Massachusetts, 31 and a half tested positive in April, 
for a 0.31% mortality rate. You go to Germany, Gangelt, Germany, 14% tested positive, 0.37% mortality rate. Stockholm, Sweden, 11% tested positive, 0.4% mortality rate. Helsinki, Finland, 3.4% tested positive, 0.19% mortality rate. You go to France, uh, in this region, 3% tested positive, 0.06% mortality rate. San Miguel County, Colorado, 1.25 tested positive, 0.1% mortality rate. So now we're seeing new data coming out. Again, you'll catch the theme there. I, I know I ran through a lot of statistics, but you were seeing mortality rates from 0.06% to half a point, right? Never got anywhere near over 3%. That the World Health Organization was trumpeting back in March, might even been January or February, but nowhere even close. Once we started doing real antibody tests and understanding far more widespread, hit the United States earlier, a lot more people had it, a lot of antibodies out there, the mortality fatality rate far, far lower than what people had initially thought. So now we see new data from the CDC, uh, which puts the mortality rate with, with coronavirus at 0.4%. And this data is based on information from five different scenarios. CDC found that 1.3% of the people that are 65 and older who get the Chinese coronavirus die, while the mortality rate for those between the ages of 0 and 49 is a mere 0.05%. The CDC also found that 35% of those active coronavirus cases are asymptomatic. Again, this information is in stark contrast to what we were hearing at the time from leading health officials. And I give you Dr. Flippity Flop Fauci, who back in March, he stated that the flu has a mortality of 0.1%, but it might have a mortality, uh, the, the, I apologize, the flu has a mortality rate of 0.1%, this coronavirus has a mortality rate of 10 times that. Also in March, the World Health Organization reported that the global coronavirus mortality rate was at 3.4%. Again, all the statistics I just read to you completely undercut that, and those are real statistics, real data. Not estimates, not so-called experts going on TV and intoning that the world is about to end. So what we're seeing now is, is a complete and utter failure of, I think, various institutions, whether on the global stage or even on the domestic stage in the United States. So one of the things, people, people obviously are asking, how did we even fall for this? How did we go for this? How did we get into this situation? Well, first of all, we'll go back again to the paper Idiocracy and the so-called experts uh, completely failing uh, the, the American people. And there, this is something that I'll probably discuss in more length in a later podcast. But the American people typically don't ask much of their government. I mean, think about it. We prefer, most of us prefer to be left alone. The, the majority of people prefer to be left alone. We pay our taxes, give us good roads, uh, use the postal system every now and then, but, but give us good roads, make sure there's a strong national defense, uh, stay out of our business, please. But we do put money in to our government to fund it. Again, all power flows from the people in a republic, right? We the people, power flows from us to our elected officials who are asked to be good stewards, expected to be good stewards of the power and the monies that are given to them to then enact a government that protects and advances the American people's rights, inherent rights. One of the things that we expect when we are giving ungodly sums of tax money 
is that our elected officials are creating these various institutions and funding them to serve the American people well. And I will tell you this, I think the NIH and the CDC and all of these other institutions that are supposedly are to, to be preparing this country for anything that might be coming down the pipeline in regards to a pandemic have completely and utterly failed. I mean, when you're literally studying, I think this was CDC, but it might have been NIH. I think it was NIH are doing case studies in uh, trying to understand how drunken monkeys respond, obviously, when, when heavily inebriated, we might not be using our taxpayer dollars very well, right? I think we need to have a blue ribbon commission at some point, uh, if not this year, next year, in which we bring these, these heads of these various uh, institutions in front of Congress and ask them hard questions. What are you actually doing to prepare the next time a pandemic comes? You know, we had the swine flu uh, about 10 years ago. We've had, we've had major pandemics and, and flus hit this country. Again, the, the Asian flu hit 1957, 1958. We had the Hong Kong flu, I believe it was 68, 67, 68, 69 in that time frame. 100,000 100, Americans more than that died in each one of those instances. Swine flu, I think it was over 60 million Americans got infected with it. And yet it seems every time that these things happen, these institutions that are receiving tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars every year seem wildly unprepared. We need to have a blue ribbon commission on what are they actually doing. Our elected officials have been tasked with being good stewards of the power and the monies given to them to provide oversight as to how those monies are being spent. We have been wildly failed by our elected officials. But why did, how did we get here? So let's go back and talk about some of these utterly garbage model projections. So in middle of March, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, flippity flop, and Dr. Burks walked in to the White House and delivered to Trump the complete garbage Imperial College model that said there could be upwards of 2 million Americans dying if strong measures were not taken. So we should probably go back at some point. There are people have written this. I would encourage you to go Google and look at <clears throat> software engineers that have looked at the Imperial College uh, software and realized complete garbage. Like these, the, these models should never have been relied upon for anything, much less putting together models that made uh, people were making major economic decisions based off in which impacted <laughs> hundreds of millions of American lives and, and English lives and, and people across the globe. So just, again, I would encourage you to go, but I know that one software engineer uh, wrote about how the Imperial College knew that their software was buggy. They knew that it was had a lot of issues. What the Imperial College would do, they would put in the same statistics, the same information at the very beginning and run the model. Pretty much every time, it would spit out different results. Starting from the same point, different results every time. The Imperial College got to the point, they would run a test four or five times through their software, and again, four or five different results. They would then average that out and say, here are our results. That's not science, people. That's not modeling. I don't even know what that is. But it sure as heck should never have been used to actually influence people into making serious decisions. 
The other thing, too, that is staggering to me is that Niall Ferguson, the, the, the head of the Imperial College, the modeling, the one that put this out, should never have been in this place uh, where he was. 15 years ago, he spit out a model from the Imperial College that said upwards of 150 million people could die from the bird flu, from the avian flu. We now know it was not even, it was barely even a infinitesimal fraction of that that actually died. This guy already had a track record for spitting out bogus models, garbage assumptions, and people actually still took them seriously, including flippity flop Fauci and Burks. So they walked it in. Obviously, Trump realized, well, here, here are my so called experts, and they're telling me upwards of 2 million Americans might die if we don't take strong measures. Again, so we get the first two weeks. Uh, lockdown, which I have to tell you, I was fine with. I was fine with us hitting pause for two weeks for us trying to understand what was actually happening. How serious was the Chinese coronavirus? What is the impact? What's the real mortality rate, infection rate, etc., etc. So I was fine with those first two weeks, to be completely honest. Well, then at the end of those two weeks, I thought again, you know, I remember seeing Trump doing the press, uh, the, the interview with Fox News in the Rose Garden in which he said, hey, we're going to be reopened by Easter. Lo and behold, Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, walk in the Murray model out of the University of Washington, also deeply flawed. I think it's on probably its you know, 932nd iteration. Again, hyperbole for those that are, are listening from the left. But so many different iterations because every single one has been pretty much wrong coming out of the Murray model. Well, Fauci and Burks walked this in beginning of April. And again, this was, again, staggering statistics that, again, a million or two million Americans might die. Well, a couple of weeks later, you see Fauci and Burks kind of revise this figure down to 100,000 to maybe 240,000. And again, right now, if you were to accept the numbers that are being put out, it's towards the low end, right? 100,000. Uh, and that's from the updated estimate. Again, I, I think the real figure is much lower. And again, if you take out uh, the, the rest home and assisted living and those that actually died from coronavirus, I, I think you're looking at a much, much, much lower figure than 108,000. So it's pretty staggering when you think about this. We, we, we have these so-called educated elites walking with these flawed, bogus models. And we have now put out you know, over 40 million Americans from a job. Thankfully, two and a half million great job numbers that just came out recently. The real unemployment rate or the unemployment rates now, I think 13 and a half percent. And I think the real unemployment rate not too long ago was 20 percent plus, which was well above you know, the first, I think, first two, three years of the Great Depression. I mean, it was, we, we were headed down a very bad path. And so thankfully, it looks like things are correcting. Again, we're going to have to see what the implications are for people getting their jobs back, being able to pay their mortgage and rent. I mean, that's one thing I think people should be paying attention to. What are the ramifications on our economy and our market from people that are going to be defaulting on mortgages, um, and not paying rent, because then again, there's that trickle down, there's that that effect as well that I don't think we fully understood. You know, again, and, and you're seeing restaurants reopen. I know recently, uh, about a, two, three weeks ago, saw statistics that 100,000 small businesses 
we're, we're declaring bankruptcy. Again, proving my, my, my whole theory and, and premise that I'd made a bet with a friend at the very beginning of this that there would probably be more suicides and bankruptcies than actual deaths from coronavirus. And so far, I'm right. So I think one of the things uh, that we need to do going forward is understand that next time we have a situation like this, question the premise, question the assumptions, question everything, right? Do not accept what is being told to you just because simply somebody with a piece of paper from somewhere who's been in, been in government you know, for 40 years is somehow telling you that this is true, which I have to tell you this, speaking of, Dr. Flippity Flop Fauci, he's been in the administrative state bureaucracy for almost 40 years. And the thing that is staggering and, and continues to stagger me is that conservative voices who understood that the DOJ and the FBI, government institutions, had been politicized and used as political weapons against political opponents over policy differences during this whole ridiculous Russian collusion fairy tale, somehow decided that our health bureaucracy was not politicized. I'm here to tell you that as our law enforcement, our Department of Justice were politicized, our health organizations and bureaucracy also politicized. People have, people have an agenda. And, and at some point we have to understand, again, our administrative state has failed us. Most of those inside the bureaucracy do not have an America first worldview. And we have to question the entire premise of it because look what we've done. Because of what has taken place over the last 115 years, 100, 100, 100 years, call it, in which we've accepted the entire premise of the administrative state and this massive bureaucracy filled with unelected educated elites, here we are today. The impact has been staggering on this country. And I think, but, but, but thank God for the resilience of the American spirit and the American people. I think the tide is turning. We'll see. So, you know, my hope is uh, that as we come out of this entire incident, I'm, even, I'm not even sure I want to call it a pandemic, that we, hopefully the, the American economy will, will rebound. It looks like rebounding. We'll wait to see about the mortgages and the rent and all these, the real estate issues. But I think one of the things that, that hasn't been discussed that should be highlighted the fact that you know we're, we're, we're hopeful that, again, the American economy will get back sooner rather than later, although some are saying we won't really fully be back till 2022. But think about the economic devastation that has been brought about by these lockdowns on the less developed nations in the world. The United Nations, again, United Nations, whatever. But they do predict that this severe, a severe global recession is going to do the economic progress and development that's taken place over the last three decades. As many as 421 million people will be plunged into extreme poverty, uh, which means living on less than $2 a day. Uh, the UN also predicts that an additional 130 million people will be thrown into the brink of starvation. And World Vision estimates that maybe 30 million children will be at the risk of dying in the near future. I mean, th this is incredible what we have done to not only some of the more advanced economies in the world, but the impact that we've had on, on less robust economies. And this is why I always say progressive ideology is very regressive. It's extremely damaging to those trying to emerge. 
whether on the energy front, you know, now we're seeing the, you know, the impact, the economic impact of the so-called educated elites, the progressive elites, what they've done. Progressivism is regressive. And always remember that when you see a so-called educated, uneducated elite coming out and spouting off something that probably isn't quite true. So um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, you know, is claiming uh, that there will be staggering amount of deaths uh, in uh, Africa. The team of researchers at Johns Hopkins University estimated that across 118 poor and middle-income countries, disruption to the healthcare sector and widespread hunger could potentially kill 1.2 million more children and 57,000 mothers within a six-month period. I mean, that's one of the things that people, again, don't really emphasize, but they should. It's not just the, the whole entire economic shutdown and the coronavirus deaths, those deaths from coronavirus. What are the impacts on the healthcare industry in which people aren't going to get treatment? They're staying home out of fear of the coronavirus and actually like the impact that it could have, the ripple effect that it could have on people with these underlying conditions, severe underlying conditions. It, it, it's amazing to me what we have done to ourselves in a supposedly rational, advanced society and allowing this to happen. Again, think about how bad it is, though, in less developed countries. In India, 140 million people lost their jobs. The economy is shrinking at a rate of 45% since the government shut the economy down on March 24th. Because of the three-month lockdown in India, an estimated half a million deaths from tuberculosis are set to occur. In Nepal, the hours men can work for wages have fallen by 75%. While in Uzbekistan, the number of households where at least one person is in the labor force has declined by more than 40%. Over 80% of Kenyans and Sinhalese report a loss of income in early April, while protests in the working class areas in Colombia are now commonplace. I mean, the, the trickle-down effect is going to be pretty amazing. And again, it, it'll take years to recover from this, all based off bogus models, garbage assumptions, our so-called educated elite, uh, instilling fear and panic uh, when it was, quite frankly, unnecessary. I think the other thing, too, and I appreciated Attorney General Bill Barr making this point the other day, how deeply he is concerned about this uneven application of the First Amendment, in which we see these hundreds of thousands of people out there protesting or rioting or looting, and the educator elite and governors and those that are in charge of the state go, oh, this is fine. This is fine. But when it comes to churches being able to meet they're being restricted. They're, they were prohibited. Now they're being restricted to 50% occupancy. I mean, I, I just, I'm sitting here in Percival, Virginia, again, about an hour side of DC. And there was a march in Percival, Black Lives Matter, which will be another topic I will discuss in which people are getting played by the entire Marxist Black Lives Matter movement. But there was a march in Percival. I would say there were probably look like a thousand, maybe more, just rough estimate. On the exact same day that our high school graduates were supposed to have their outside graduation ceremony, guess what didn't happen? The high school graduation, guess what did happen? Again, 1,000, maybe 2,000 people marching down the streets in close proximity to each other, many of them without masks. Are you kidding me? What a joke. So the fact that Attorney General Bill Barr pointed this out over the weekend I thought was very encouraging where he is looking into this uneven application of the First Amendment. 
And, and, and the thing that's amazing to me is how some of these people are literally being threatened with fines, being sent to jail. I mean, remember that incident back in Kentucky where the police broke up a service and told parishioners, you're gonna, you have to leave or you'll face a $500 fine. Um, you know, the, the Democratic governor, Andy Bashar, Bashir, however you pronounce his name of Kentucky, urged his citizens not to attend church in any fashion for Easter Sunday. He claimed that anyone who attended any form of service would then be found by the police and required to self-quarantine for 14 days. I mean, you just go down through the list of these Democrat governors and Democrat mayors who have literally threatened prison and massive fines for those attending church, for those who want to open their small businesses so they can actually make an income so they can pay their mortgages and put food on the table. Well, those people are public enemy number one. But by God, these people out there protesting, rioting, and looting, well, that's fine. The hypocrisy is staggering. And again, it's one of those things I hope that the American people truly are watching. I, I understand that, that many times a lot of what takes place in what I call the Acela Corridor in New York City and Washington, D.C., most of the American people are not truly paying attention, which, which I think is a shame that we have a media that's not really communicating the truth and facts and statistics. They're more just propagandists. And it's a shame that they weren't doing their job. So most of the American people have kind of tuned it out. They're not really paying attention. And when they do pay attention, they're not getting the facts and statistics. But I hope that the American people are watching in this instance. And I hope that they understand they've been played by the so-called experts. They have been used and abused by their elected officials who have arbitrarily decided shutdowns or masks or social distancing as it suited them politically. This is all political. This, the, the, you look at what is taking place, and I'm not saying that for certain segments of the population, obviously an older population, or those with serious underlying conditions, that coronavirus can't be deadly. But it was used as a political weapon. This whole situation was used as a political weapon against Trump. The economy was shut down, and now they want to continue this, and they're hoping that somehow, you know, fingers crossed, and they've even admitted it. Some Democratic strategists have admitted that if the economy rebounds faster than we thought, it's going to help Trump get reelected. At least they're being honest about it. But I, I, I hope that the American people realize how poorly they're being served by, by one of the major parties in this country. That it's all about political power. It's not about the well-being or health of the American people. So I hope that this was a meaningful podcast. I hope that you got some statistics and facts along as, as always a little rant, um, which is good for the soul and that you'll continue to listen. We'll be posting, I hope, a couple times a week uh, with this podcast. I think the next one, I might be dealing with Black Lives Matter and really delving into that because I think a lot of people are, are completely ignorant on the fact that you have black Marxists, Black Lives Matter, riding and looting along with their white Marxist friends, Antifa. And I think people need to have a better understanding of Black Lives Matter. And next time somebody brings up Black Lives Matter and all of these things, have a better understanding of where this whole movement came from and what their end goals are. Mm -hmm.